while the rest of us turn to the gospel according to Luke. It is not Luke's gospel. There's only one. His name is Jesus. It's four accounts of one gospel. This is the gospel according to Luke. Bible's in the back. If you don't have one, reading from the ESV. Mike, if you could turn the lights on, that would be great. We're in chapter 7, verses Chapter 7, verses 11 through 17. 11 through 17, the gospel according to Luke. And again, like last week, Jesus is still in, uh, uh, he's in north of Jerusalem in a region called Galilee. But when we get to chapter 9, let me just let you know, we get to chapter 9, uh, verse 51, there's a change in the book. It's, it's a nice splitting point. Up to now, he's ministering in Galilee. In chapter 9, verse 51, we read these words. When the days drew near for him, that's Jesus, to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. Jesus is heading south from Galilean ministry. I have a map for you in a minute. And he's now headed toward Jerusalem where he would be Crucified. He is heading at chapter 9, verse 51, to his divine appointment, the execution on a Roman cross, to be our substitute as he dies in our place for our sins. Chapter 9, verse 51, heads him in that direction. The ultimate purpose for which he came, right, was to die. It is the greatest earthly display of the glory of God. It's the cross of Christ where justice and mercy meets. It's where God's holiness is vindicated and his love is displayed and forgiveness is offered to all who call upon him. That, my friends and family, is the gospel. Until we get to chapter 9, what we have been seeing over the past few chapters is that Jesus has been demonstrating his kingly authority. See, the Old Testament prophets in the Old Testament declared that a king would be born. A king who would inaugurate an eternal kingdom in which he would reign eternally over this kingdom with truth and justice and righteousness. And Luke tells us at the very beginning of the book that Jesus is that promised king. He's the promised Messiah, God in the flesh, the Messiah, the Redeemer. Jesus has also, we've seen over the past few chapters, teaching and calling people to follow him, a call to discipleship. The call of discipleship is to renounce the lordship over your own life trying to justify yourself, being Lord of yourself. The call of disciples is to renounce the lordship over your own life and reorient your life, your whole life, around Christ and the gospel. And after Jesus spends all night vigil in prayer, he names and calls his 12 apostles, begins to teach them and and his disciples that have gathered on what is expected of them. We saw that in chapter 6, verses 20 through 49. What is expected? As they follow him, what will that look like? Then last week, as we followed Jesus, we walked with him uh, back into Galilee from this mountain, back into Galilee to a town called Capernaum, where he continued to display his power and his authority as king of kings. And this time, though, as we saw last week, this was through a, a, a centurion, a Roman soldier's humble faith, with a, with, with a simple spoken word for, from a distance. Jesus healed a centurion's servant who was on his deathbed. One, the Bible says that he was highly favored. He loved this servant. 
And today we see Jesus back on the move. He's doing what he said he was going to do. You remember back in chapter 4, he was in Capernaum healing and ministering and delivering people from diseases and, and demon possession. And the Capernaum folks said, look, stay with us. Don't go anywhere. Just stay right here. And Jesus in chapter 4, verse 42 and 43 says, you know what? I, I can't stay. I got to go. He says, Jesus says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well. I can't just stay here. For that was the purpose of which I was sent. So we see Jesus back on the move. Now, just to give you an a, a understanding where this is. You see the Sea of Galilee. To the left, you see Capernaum. You see Cana, where he turned uh, water into wine. Um, Nazareth, where his hometown. Then you see Nain. Jerusalem is south. Samaritan is, Samaria is south. Jesus was, as we said, in Capernaum. And today he is off to a city call Nain. So, that being said, turn in our text, chapter 7, we'll see three things. We'll see the calamity or the catastrophe as, as the, the setting of, of this narrative. Then we'll see the compassion, the compassion of Christ as he has on this family. And then lastly, we'll see the consequences of what takes place after Jesus and his miraculous healing. So first thing is the calamity. Today's text is one of those texts that we need to enter into it. It's difficult. But I think Luke is trying to show us something. Jesus' popularity has grown. We see it in verse 1. Lots of disciples, his apostles are with him. His disciples are following him. The Bible says there's also a very large crowd. There must be just people interested in this miracle worker who's healing all kinds of illnesses. As I said, delivering people from all kinds of spiritual and emotional oppression. A large crowd is going from town to town, village to village. And he comes to this little, very little, small, obscure town in Galilee called Nain. Nain is about 25 miles southwest of Capernaum, where he is. It's about a day's journey. And Nain is only about six miles from Jesus' hometown of Nazareth. So you can only imagine, as a young boy, I'm sure he's been to Nain before. And verse 12 tells us that he drew, as he drew near to the gate of this town, behold, a man, or the actual original language it says, behold, one who has died, was being carried out. Notice what it says. The only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. Luke is giving us these details, these important details. Not only because he's being led by the Holy Spirit, right? God breathed out his word through this doctor's report as he compiles this investigation through eyewitnesses. We saw that in chapter 1. But also... Luke wants us, the Holy Spirit wants us, to enter into this narrative to feel the weight of it. I would imagine that most of you here today have experienced the loss of someone you love. Some of you, some of you young people, maybe you haven't, but many of you have. Some, some of you know, most of you know, it's hard. It's hard. It feels... Rather unnatural, it feels like this is not the way life's supposed to be. Even losing a grandparent, someone in their 80s or 90s, 
How much more for a mom or a dad? As we see in this text, bury their, bury their own. I've mentioned this before, but I think it's important. Many of you have seen the movie Forrest Gump. There's a scene in the movie which Forrest Gump, played by Tom Hanks, finds out that his mother is dying and he rushes to the house. And he runs up the step, the doctor is there, and he walks in and there's his mom in bed, Sally Fields. And as he walks in the room, she says to him, Forrest, I'm dying. And Forrest says to her, why are you dying, mama? In which she responds, it's just my time. She said, now, in her southern droll, now, now, don't you be afraid, sweetheart. Death is just part of life. Good movie, lousy line. Death is not part of life. Death is not part of life. Death was not part of God's first creative order. The Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death. Death is not to be embraced as part of life. It's something that we just, part of living. Death's part of the curse. Death is an enemy. Death needs to be crushed. Death needs to be defeated. It's not a friend. It's a foe. That's why Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass the saying which is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And the one who will conquer death, the one who has power over life and death, is coming around the corner heading to this city, this town called Nain. And there's a woman, not, not just a woman, look what the text says, not just a woman, but a widow. In other words, this one has, this one has seen and, in the past what it means to be in pain. She, she, she knows the pain and the difficult road that she's on because she's already buried her husband. She's a widow. Now she's mourning the loss of her son. And not just the son, look what it says, but the only son she had. Now, many of us, again, felt the pain of losing someone. But only parents who have suffered this anguish know the anguish, the agony, the pain, the hurt experienced bearing a child. Some of you have. And some of you right now may be feeling the pain again. I want to tell you, hang in there. Hang in there. The story continues for this widow. The story continues for you. The movie's not over. Don't walk out. The text tells us that there's a funeral going on. In those days, the dead were buried outside the city. Usually, usually as the sun was coming down, on the same day that the person died, they would be buried. The, the procession we see here is not like ours as cars go out to the city where the person would be buried. But here we see their town folks, they're on foot, right? And some of the people in the procession of those days would bring their instruments out if they played. And they would, they would play a, a mournful dirge on their flutes and other instruments. They were professional mourners. Women who were, who were called on to weep and to wail as this, as this giant public expression of, of communal grief as they grieve over the death of a child. I witnessed professional mornings in a, in a funeral years ago when I was down in, in Harlem in New York City. Here the people are paying their respects. 
This idea of mourning, this idea of walking out, this idea of carrying the person out is an act of love by the community, especially when there is a widow involved. And as they leave the city, they would lay their deceased to rest in one of the rocky tombs in the cemetery on the side of the road. I read this week that it's still there today. And to add to the pain to add to the difficulties, to add to the struggle and the anguish that this woman is under and experiencing. Remember, in those days, a woman was to have, when she is getting older, she'd be taken care of by her family, her son. No Social Security benefits, no IRA or any other you know, retirement plan. Now, as a widow, she has no one to support. Her son's not there. She's alone. Her husband has died. The one who would take care of her in her old age, a child, providing food and shelter, is gone. The one who would nurture her while she was sick and elderly is gone. She may be even reduced to suffering, excuse me, to begging in those days. Only son, a widow, alone, feel the tragedy. Feel the depth of that. Her heartache was, was, was massive. Her tears intense. She felt alone in the world without a provider, without a protector. And in the morning, the next morning when she'd wake up, she would not hear the sounds of her, of her beloved son. Her heart would be broken. And the death that she's experienced really is a shared sorrow for all of us. And it's because of sin. You see, God gave us life, yet we sinned. We chose to sin, and in choosing to sin, Death came and judgment came. If sin had never been introduced in the world, there would be no funerals, there would be no death. Romans 5.12 make it very clear. Sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. It's a shared sorrow. It's a shared pain. It's a shared anguish. Broken heart. Martin Luther, famous reformer, When you hear of death, you must think not only of the grave and the coffin and of the horrible manner in which life is separated from the body and how the body is destroyed and brought to naught. But you must think of the cause by which man is brought to death and without which death and that which accompanies it would be impossible, namely sin, the wrath of God on account of sin, end quote. The catastrophe, the calamity, the pain and arduousness of this situation. But Jesus gets to the place. (laughs) Exactly when they're carrying her son out of the gate. The only son of the widow, just at the right time. (laughs) Not according to her timetable, I'm sure, but according to his. This young man likely was dying and died as Jesus left Capernaum and headed to Nain. Just in time to get to that town. And if you've ever been involved in a tragedy or a difficulty or a hardship and you're struggling with all the pain going on in your life and you look back, you know that God is always late because God is always on time. (laughs) We say, Lord, I need you now. I need you to do something now. And he says, in a day. Maybe two. Or in Lazarus' case, four. And just because we find ourselves in a position of need and and our request to God for intervening 
at our appointed time, and he doesn't, it doesn't mean that he doesn't love you. Actually, it's because he does love you. That's what he says in John 11. Because he loved Lazarus, he waited. And it's frustrating for us because we're in time, right? God's outside of time. He's eternal. He has a timetable that is perfect. To us, he's always late, but to him, he's always on time. Jesus comes around the corner and he sees his funeral procession. A procession. What does he say? What does it say? He had compassion on her. His heart went out to her. Jesus sees the wailing and his love goes out to her. The word compassion is, is a strong word. It, it means compassion or passionate feelings. and A deep, intense, deep gut response of loving sympathy for someone else's pain and hurts and agony. He could see the woman's alone. He could see there was no husband and no children. She was losing what little left she had. And when Jesus sees this, this broken, helpless condition of this woman's great loss, the Bible says he has compassion on her. He was drawn to her with love and sympathy. Notice the difference, family, between last week's narrative and this week's narrative. Last week, if you remember, the centurion had faith in Jesus, and Jesus responds to this, to this humble faith of the centurion and his plea to heal his servant to whom he loved. You don't see any of that here. This widow may not even notice or even heard of Jesus. She doesn't ask for help. She doesn't seek his support, but he goes after her anyway. He's a busy person. He's a busy man. Just walked 25 miles, probably healing and teaching along the way so that he can get to Nain, so that he can get to this woman with this divine appointment. Jesus seeks out people who are hurting. Jesus seeks out people who are in need. You may be thinking there was a time in your life, no, 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 I sought out Jesus. I was seeking after God. Actually, that's not accurate. The only reason that you recall a time when your heart was, was seeking after the Lord is because Jesus was already pursuing you. John 6, no one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Verse 65 of chapter 10, 6. No one comes to me unless it is granted to him by his Father. And, and can we just be honest? Can we just be honest? Many of us find it hard. Many of us know the emotional draining that takes place. When we pursue and we show comfort and compassion with ones we love, never mind a stranger. Sometimes we don't know what to say, right? But those are hurting. Sometimes we don't know what to do. Or maybe we're dealing with our own hurt, our own pain at the moment. We just don't have enough in us. Or maybe sometimes when people are going through hurt and pain, what it does to us is too much for us if we were honest. But not Jesus Christ the Lord. He has compassion on her. Remember, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Hebrews 13. 
And therefore, we can know for sure, family, that Jesus cares for us the same way. The same Jesus who had compassion on his widow reaches out to us by the power of the Spirit when we feel helpless in the face of tragedy. He knows our losses. He knows our suffering. And the cries of our anguish, of, his, of our hearts, draws his heart to us. Surely, Isaiah said in chapter 53, surely he, Jesus, has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. So we can go to him with our calamities, our, our catastrophes, our, our, our troubles, knowing that his heart of love is waiting for us in our sorrows and in our brokenness. Look what Jesus says. Not only does he have compassion on her, look what it says. He tells the woman to what? Stop weeping. Same word used in chapter 6, verse 21. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. In other words, there will time when, 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 you're, when you're weeping will turn to joy and laughter. It will replace grief. I think in chapter 6, he's talking about in eternity. But here we see that's what happens. And think about that for a minute. This, 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 this crowd is coming out. The dead young boy is on a, a stretcher. And Jesus tells her, listen, stop weeping. She's probably thinking like, really? Easier said than done, dear Jesus. Very appropriate, right, for a woman to be weeping, broken, lost her only son, over, having this overflowing emotion and tears that represent her grieving heart. But Jesus has good reason to tell this woman to dry her tears because his instruction was a pre-miracle command, right? This wasn't an, an insensitive, stop crying, uh, he, he's in a better place today. His command to stop weeping is backed up with divine power to turn weeping in that moment into joy. And then in verse 14, Jesus does the unthinkable. He reached out and touched the beer, and the bearer stood still. A, a beer is an open coffin, right? It's not like what we have today. A beer is an open coffin, and this open coffin, the body would be in it, the anointed corpse would be laying on this open uh, coffin, and Jesus walks right up to the body, reaches into this beer, into this coffin, and the bearers stood still. Everyone was in shock, I am sure. In fact, Jesus may have done that just to get the whole procession to stop. And everyone is like, what is he doing? You are Jew, you can't touch a dead body, Lord Jesus. Don't you know that? Because at that moment, the Jewish law says that Jesus now, touching a dead body, is ceremonially unclean. You don't touch dead bodies. And in every circumstance up to that day, every circumstance up to that day, when the clean touch the unclean, the clean becomes unclean. Uncleanness imparts uncleanness. But now, the Holy One of Israel, the perfect spotless Lamb of God, God himself touches the unclean and imparts cleanness. Right? When, when our filth, when our shame, when our guilt, when our sin comes in contact with Jesus, we're washed clean. 
We are cleansed and washed in the blood of Jesus. All the sins that we have committed and all the shame and, and stupidity that we have done and all the sin and shame that's been done to us, cleansed. Do you know that this morning? Your sin and sins have been committed, washed in the blood of Jesus. And here Jesus reaches literally into death and he touches the young man and he gives him command. Right? What does he say? Young man, I say to you, here comes the command, arise. One word. Arise. What happens? Verse 15. The dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gives him to his mother. Now, the interesting word sat up is, is a medical term, typically, right, used by Dr. Luke. Used for medical recovery, sit up, and he begins to speak, showing that he had a full recovery. Imagine for a moment, please. Imagine for a moment what that widowed mom must have felt at that moment. Can you feel her overwhelming joy as her son starts speaking to his mom? How long do you think she held him and didn't let him go? Maybe she was jumping for joy. Tears of shock, tears of joy coming down her face. Got her son back alive, restored full health. And then Jesus, he must have, they must have put the beer down. Gives in compassion, here's your son. Hands the son to his mom. That's what Jesus does. He touches dead people and brings them to life. The healing of the widow's son was a mighty demonstration of the authority, the kingly power of King Jesus. Kent Hughes writes something I saw in his commentary. I have it for you. I hope you to think through this situation. He says this, the gray, cold clay of his face flushed with color. His fixed, dilated eyes twitched and focused on the blue sky. He blinked, he sat up, and his shroud, and he began to talk. Perhaps his words were mundane. Mother, you look tired. Or, Mother, I'm hungry. Who are these people? Or perhaps it was gloriously exalted, end quote. We don't know. Something to think about. Jesus' effortless call to raise the dead contrasts with all, a few of people. There have been some, not very common, but a few people in the scripture, and particularly the Old Testament, that have brought people back to life. Elijah and Elijah. Both those men stretched over people and prayed and called upon God to help and brought people back to life. 1 Kings 17, 2 Kings 4. Jesus speaks a word, arise, and the dead obey. <laughs> Some skeptics disparage this miracles over the years. It didn't happen, even though in each case there were plenty of witnesses. The event was widely reported. But there's a Christian apologist about a little less than a century after this incident. His name was... Quadratus, he writes to a, a this, we have this historical record, he writes to the emperor, and this is what he wrote. This is less than a century away. The persons 
who were healed and those who were raised from the dead by Jesus were not only seen when they were healed and raised, but were always present also afterwards. And not merely during the time that the Savior walked upon the earth, but after his departure. Also, they were still there for a considerable time so that some of them lived even until our times, end quote. You know, in front of everybody, word is spreading eyewitness after eyewitness after eyewitness of this account. And let me tell you, friend, uh, friends and family, this narrative is a, is, is a picture, is an analogy of our salvation, is it not? Which is a greater miracle than this. As great as this is, salvation is an eternal miracle. The Apostle Paul writes in the book of Ephesians chapter 2, Verses 4 and 5, he says, he says this, but he says this after he says we're dead in our sins, we've been walking with Satan, we're by nature children of wrath. Then Paul writes this, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. See, God in his word declares that because we are sinners, we're dead. And although physically alive, we are spiritually dead. We are spiritually in the same condition as this young man on his beer. We do not seek God. The Bible says that no one sees God, no one finds God. This man was not crying out or seeking Jesus. This man is not running to Capernaum to find Jesus so that he could get healed. This man is dead, dead, dead and has done nothing for his resurrection. He doesn't reach out to Jesus, but Jesus, in grace, reaches out to him, grants him new life, and simply by the gift, as I said, of grace. That's how salvation works. That's what the Apostle Paul said. We're absolutely dead in our sin. It's only when Jesus finds us. It's only when Jesus pursues us. It's only when Jesus reaches out to us and touches us and gives us spiritual life. Spiritually alive, grants us a new heart a new nature, a new life by the power of the Holy Spirit. And therefore, we, say, we could say with confidence that the reason this, this power, this resurrection power comes into someone's life is by grace alone. What did she do? What did this woman do to have her son risen from the dead as well? Is she, is she exercising faith? I believe you can do it, Jesus. We see that in Scripture, but not here. Does she beg him, please, please, please don't leave the town? Nope. He does not come into her life, into her life, because of her compassion and her goodness. Jesus comes into her life because of his compassion and his goodness. On all disciples, all followers of Christ experience that new life, the work of Jesus. Guaranteeing us new life. I experienced it in my mid-20s. I went from spiritual death to spiritual life. I didn't earn it. There's nothing I could do. And it happened. It was Jesus who reached down into my death and touched me. And, and then he, he took this dead, defiled, unclean sinner, that's me, and granted me life, forgiveness of sins. And if you're a Christian, you've experienced that. And if you're not a believer and you're here, you're wondering, how, how can I get connected to God? How can, I, how can I have this spiritual awakening? Jesus told Martha at the tomb of Lazarus, her brother, I am the resurrection and the life. 
Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Being connected with Jesus is a work of grace. It's through repentance and faith and trust in him. And let me tell you what's going on here as well in this narrative. I want you to see what Jesus is doing. In addition to loving this widow and raising the son, he is also unveiling his kingly authority. See, our Jesus is a king, and he's bringing in a kingdom. And you and I will rise, and resurrection is a revelation of the kingdom, is a foreshadow of what's going to take place. It is a glimpse into what God intends for all of us who believe in him in the consummation of the ages. See this calamity, you see this compassion of Christ, and last we see the consequences. Look at verse 16 with me. The boy's up, he's talking, he's delivered to his mom. Fear, you think? (laughs) Fear sees them all, and they glorify God, saying, a great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. Let me go back, I'm sorry. Can you go back to? First slide. Fear. When we talk about fear, we're not talking about negative fear. Someone's going to harm you. We're talking about reverent awe. Reverent awe seized everyone as they worship the Lord. Now listen. What you're seeing here in this text, listen carefully. What you're seeing in this text is really the essence of worship. It is. It's the essence of worship. The essence of worship is our response to the revelation of God, the unveiling of who God is, okay? That's the essence of worship. Do you realize this morning that God is unknowable? God is unknowable unless he makes himself knowable. God is unknowable unless he makes himself known. In other words, you can't look within yourself or look to yourself to know who God is and what God is like. When you do that, if you're trying to figure it out on your own, guess who your God is? Your own imagination, your own speculation. Even though the scriptures read that, uh, say that the, the heavens declare the glory of God in the sky above, proclaim his handiwork, and that is true, but it's limited. Yet God, in love, God in his grace, has revealed himself to us in His word. This is a gift. This is how we know God. Through his word. And when we see him. In all his power. In all his authority. In all his sovereignty. In all his beauty. In all his majesty. is revealed to us in his word. Our response to that. To that unveiling. That self-revelation. Is worship. That's why we're word saturated here. Our response to the unveiling of God's word. John 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and the word, verse 14, became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory as the only, excuse me, glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The full and final disclosure of God, the unveiling of God is Jesus Christ. And this Jesus, the glory of God in the flesh, shows up in Nain and reveals himself in the greatest display of his kingly authority, his his authority over life and death. And the response is worship. 
I mean, they didn't know. I, it's obvious they didn't know exactly who Jesus was. That he actually the God, the Son. They didn't deny his kingly authority. They didn't deny his power. They knew that. And look what it says. He was a great prophet. And that's correct. He was a great prophet. Actually, he's the ultimate prophet. He's the ultimate king and priest. Prophet, priest, and king. The ultimate one. He's God himself. And they testified that in Christ, God has come to visit his people. Think back in chapter 1, Zechariah, John the Baptist's dad, in his, in his prophetic song, he said this, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Yeah, right here. Notice the text, though. What, what, notice what happens. Jesus reveals his glory, reveals his power, reveals his authority, and, and, and people are just seized with awe and reverence and worship. Look what happens next. Verse 17. Mission. That's what happens. Worship, mission. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all of the surrounding country. You see, the news about Jesus couldn't be held in. The news about Jesus' power and authority spread like wildfire. Can you imagine being there? You won't believe what I saw today. It was too powerful. It was too glorious. It was too majestic to keep that to themselves. They saw this young man come to life. This is not a secret anymore. They want to bear witness, and they bear witness all over the countryside. Witness the mission of the church. Now, this young man and others like him, whether it was Lazarus or it's the people of Elijah and Elijah's day, they all had one thing in common, did they not? They're going to die again. They died again. See, this is the difference between the raising of the dead that Jesus performed in the gospel and his own resurrection from the grave. When Jesus rose from the dead, he was raised an immortal body. One that will never die again. But the people Jesus raised did not receive a resurrection body. They came back to life in their old bodies. It's a glorious miracle, no doubt. Healing of this boy. Compassion Jesus has. There's this boy who gets up and speaks. But it, it, but it is, as Dr. Keller puts it, I love the way he says this. He says, it's a resurrection backwards. He's going to have to die anyway. He says, here's what you need. We need a resurrection forward, future. We want a resurrection into the future in which sin and everything broken by sin is fixed. The young man was resurrected back into the broken, sinful world. But there'll come a time, family, there'll come a time when everyone who ever lived Every single soul who's ever lived will be raised with an immortal body. King Jesus said in John chapter 5, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. You see, those who belong to Jesus and follow him receive eternal life. Those who do not belong to him and do not live life with him receive eternal death and damnation. All because Jesus died, rose again, immortally, never to die again. His resurrection, his final resurrection, his glorified body, never to die again, is what 1 Corinthians tells us, our own guarantee. It is the first fruit among many. 
It guarantees that. And because we know that Jesus died on the cross and rose on the third day for our sins, raised from the dead, never to die again, we want everyone to know that gospel story. It's vital. It's not just the crucifixion, it's the resurrection. The good news includes both the cross where he dies in atonement for our sins and the empty tomb Romans 4, he's been, he was raised for our justification. Justification means we've been forgiven of our sins and the imputation of his righteousness has been given to us by faith. That's the mission of the church. That's the mission today, to declare to the whole world, King Jesus lived that perfect life, a life we're commanded to live, but we can't. He died on the cross as an atoning death in our place for our punishment, paying the penalty for our sins. Three days later, rose victorious over sin, death, and hell. The tomb is empty, never to die again. He's reigning and ruling in authority over all the nations. He's calling people everywhere to repent, to turn from their sin, embrace the love of God, trust Jesus, follow Jesus, become his disciple. That's the mission of King's Chapel. We, we, we define it like this in our mission statement. We exist to glorify God, to make much of him to show his worth and his incalculable value. We exist to glorify God by living on mission with him and making disciples through gospel-centered worship, transformation, and community. That's what we're all about. Declaring and demonstrating the gospel, loving people, pointing them to Jesus. Lastly, look at what this story ultimately points to. This story, this narrative points to that Jesus is the better and the greater son. The similarities of this story in the gospel are rather interesting. Jesus is the only begotten son of God the Father. He is dearly loved. He's one of a kind son. He's the only son. He's the only son of God. This son was the only son of this woman. The father loved the son. We heard that at the baptism. This is my beloved son. And now we know that the mother loved her son as well. And just as this son died, Jesus, the greater son, the better son died. He died not for his sin. He died for our sins. This young man rose from the dead as Jesus rose from the dead. Of course, the resurrection is different. Jesus will never die again. He conquered sin and death for all the children of God. Jesus is the greater, better son. So, maybe you're here. You're suffering even now. Or maybe when that day comes when you lose someone you love and you're in pain. Or maybe you're loving someone that's going through an arduous time, a, a death of a loved one, and you want to show compassion to someone. Remember, family, remember, we have a sympathetic high priest. His name is Jesus. You have one who has been there. You have one who's, who tasted the full sting of the consequence of sin, which is death. Our God is not immune to suffering. Our God is not indifferent toward suffering. Our God is not intentive toward death. Our God... Jesus, the greater son, without unmistakably, thoroughly and completely knows what it means and what it's like to suffer and die. And he does so for you and for me and for our sin. He does it in love. And think about this for a minute too. For those of you who have buried someone you love, and I, I, I want you to know that, that God the Father fully identifies. The Father was present when, the, when his son was crucified. The Bible uses the language, father and son so that we can know that, that the, father, the, the Father experienced, or at least somewhat experienced, what we've gone through. It was Jesus who, who gave back his mom, who gave back the son to his mom. It was God the Father who gave his only begotten son. 
how Jesus suffered and died, we worship a God who's not indifferent towards suffering. Family, we'll, we'll get through this. We'll get through death until we reach the other side of resurrection. God has a plan. God has a purpose. And although it may exceedingly be painful right now, he knows firsthand of the suffering, for he was there too. And someday, all the children of God, all the children of God will experience King Jesus reaching down again into death and declaring, young man, young woman, old man, old woman, arise. I say to you, arise. The dead will come to life and be with Jesus, be united with all those who love him. And the Bible says that Jesus will wipe away every tear. No more pain, no more sorrow. No more pain and no more sorrow. So remember Jesus, the greater son. Run to him for comfort, for compassion, for love, for provision, for encouragement. And let me say this, and the band can come up as we go to communion. Now listen, family. We're going to take communion in a minute, but I want you to see something in this text. When this woman was suffering, who came out? with her the town the town came out we see with this this widow of Nain a community is is with her in this moment of suffering family you need to be in a community we need to be in community group we, we need to be members of the church we need to be connected with one another you, you need others to gather around you when you suffer and you're hurting you need to gather around people when they are suffering and hurting suffer and weep as this woman did cry and mourn surround one another with love and compassion as they did here in Nain. But by faith, trust, the resurrection is coming. His name is Jesus, He's the greater son. And someday he will, he will reach down and he will say, arise. By the grace of God, it will happen. This communion table, this communion table represents the body of Jesus that was broken, his blood that was shed. The Bible tells in 1 Corinthians 11, listen to these words. Paul says this, I have received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night with which he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he gave thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me, the broken body of Jesus on the cross for our sins. In the same way, Paul writes, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this, listen, as often as you drink in, in remembrance of me. And then he says, for as often as you eat of the bread, his broken body, drink of his cup, the blood that was shed, you proclaim the Lord's death until what? He comes. Until he commands the dead to rise. Until he comes and he gives us the immortal bodies translated now glorification bodies that we could spend eternity with our king the promise of god the communion table is not a king's chapel table it's a believer's table if you're a follower of jesus and we invite you the band's going to play come get your element and sit down and wait for me to come up and we'll take partake it together if you're not a follower of christ and you're here we're so glad you're here we love you we're about the gospel we want to see you turn from your sin and trust jesus we ain't gonna lie but the table's just for believers. So if you're not a believer, just hang back, sing the music, talk with me, Pastor Ricky, after the service. We'd love to tell you more about Jesus. The band's gonna play. We can come down the aisles and then come up, and you can sit back, spend some time confessing sin, repenting of sin, trusting in Jesus, and then celebrating. We'll celebrate together by taking the bread and the cup together, okay? This represents Jesus. 
He's here. He's inviting us by the power of the Spirit to grow in our faith and trust Him. And if you need compassion, you need to touch Jesus, we're going to pray that God will show you the depth of His love for you today. Father, just thank you for this narrative. Uh, God, thank you for this truth that has been spoken through Dr. Luke. It's not over. The movie's not done. You will come and you will restore all things. And Father, as we are left here in the brokenness of the world and we experience pain and suffering, Father, we pray that you would have compassion on us by your spirit, that you would show us much love and and God, that we would sense the presence of your spirit, your love, and your arms wrapped around us. But we do also know, God, that you use one another to show forth your love. So we do pray that as a community, we would gather together around each other, looking to you, trusting you, and asking, God, that you would help us together as a family to not only worship and trust you, but, God, to show compassion toward one another. So, Lord, as we take of this bread and the cup, we remember the work of Jesus. Help us, Lord, to confess well, to repent well, and then to celebrate well the work of Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.